following is a sermon preached at Grace Church of Orange, California. Join us now as we go verse by verse through God's inspired, inerrant, infallible Word. Some will question why God allowed this to happen, and others will draw closer to Him. And some, perhaps many, will come to saving faith through this experience. Let's be faithful to pray for one another, for health, for wisdom, and protection in coming days. Let's pray that we would be faithful to boldly proclaim the only source of security and hope for this life and the life to come. Trust and faith in our Lord Jesus. This is a unique time when people are more open to the gospel. And I pray that this would be a time when we're more bold in sharing the good news of the gospel of Christ. So you may be wondering about Pastor Mike. Yes, he is ill. He has bronchitis. He's seen his doctor. He's taking his meds and he's getting better. Be praying for Pastor Mike and for his full recovery. And be sure to watch for Grace's, Grace Church's communications by email and on Facebook, as well as on our website, graceorange.org. And don't hesitate to contact the church office should you need any more information or any pastoral assistance. We encourage everyone to be on the lookout to meet, the, meet needs and to help orchestrate meeting needs in our community. Let us continue to encourage one another and to be faithful to live out our faith so that all can see. So I would invite you now to turn in your Bibles, if you would please, to 2 Peter chapter 1. We're going to be focusing this morning on verses 5 to 11, although I, in our reading I want to start with uh, verse 3. So if you would, and uh, there's a handful of people here today, if you would stand, that would be great. And uh, if you're remote, uh, if you feel comfortable and are able, go ahead and stand for the reading of God's word. This is 2 Peter chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 3 and read down through verse 11. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-controlled with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an, an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our gracious Lord, we're thankful that we can come together today, whether in person or Father, remotely, that we are one in Christ and we can come together to worship your holy name, to be fed by the power of your word, to be led by the Spirit. Lord, we pray that uh, you would cause us to be open and receptive to that which you would have us to learn today and that we might trust you wholly and completely as the source of all that which is we need to know for life and godliness. Lord, that uh, we might seek your face and trust in you completely, Father. We pray your blessing now upon our time together, and we commit our lives to you anew in Jesus' name. Amen. So in the first 
few verses of this chapter, chapter 1 of 2 Peter, particularly verses 3 and 4, we, we see once again that God has provided for us or granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. I think we need to step back for a minute and realize that as believers, we all engage in an ongoing battle. The reality is that notwithstanding the current crisis, we live in a broken world that constantly seeks to entice us with the things of this world that draw us away from God and the good things that we too easily rely too much on. And when those things are threatened or taken away, can too easily shake our faith. The reality is that we're born sinners. The Bible tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the Bible also tells us that all those who trust in Jesus are completely forgiven, cleansed by the sacrifice of Christ on the cross for all who believe in Him. The perfect Lamb who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Yet even as we struggle with the enticements and the fragile securities of this world, and our own bent towards sin, God assures us that His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And so now we, as partakers of the, of the divine nature, have escaped from the corruption of this world. That includes every kind of natural disaster and plague that may come upon us, including the coronavirus that has engendered so much fear and anxiety. Those who trust in our Lord Jesus have already escaped the greatest disaster that could ever befall us, eternal separation from God. And in light of that reality, believers in Christ's atoning work on the cross look at the world through very different lenses. Although we experience the same hardships, the same sicknesses, the same losses and difficulties, our frame of reference is profoundly different. As the Apostle Paul put it in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentarily affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So we understand that, in other words, God has granted to every believer a new nature, a new self, a new perspective, and a divine power through His Word to enable each of us to grow in the knowledge of Christ and to live in obedience to His Word and to deal in a way that does not shake our faith even in the most difficult of times. So I want to look now at verses 5 through 11 here in 2 Peter chapter 1. Look at the first part of look at the first part of, of verse 5. For this very reason, Peter is not just offering this deep theological lesson, as powerful as it may be, but he follows it up immediately with a call to action. He starts with the incredible promises of power and partaking of the divine nature, and he moves to answer the question that he poses later on in his this letter in chapter 3. If you want to flip over to chapter 3. Well, you find where he describes the day of the Lord when God executes his final judgment upon the world. Chapter 3 and verse 10 says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it 
will be exposed. Verse 11, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will, be melt, will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heaven and new earth in which righteousness dwells. So there's a question embedded in here. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? In light of the reality is that not only do we suffer today and there's, there's sickness and death around us today, but we know that someday God will call an end to this age and he will come and he will judge the world. And what sort of people ought we to be in lives of holiness and godliness? In the original language, by the way, this is, this is more a declaration than it is a question. We ought to be a people who live lives of holiness and godliness. So as we look back to chapter 1 now and looking again at verse 5, it says that we are to make every effort to make every effort. The idea here is that we are to apply all diligence, as it says in another translation. It implies zeal and eagerness. Living a godly, holy life, though, really demands our focus and our effort and our maximum energy. Paul, I think, the Apostle Paul captured this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 pretty clearly. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24, it says, do you not know that, are, that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly, I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body in keeping it under control, lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. God calls us to live out our faith with discipline. In Philippians chapter 2, in verse 12, it says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God works in us, and we are to work diligently by his power and by his strength to accomplish that, what he's called for us to do. And he says in this passage, back to 2 Peter chapter 1, again verse 5, that we're to make every effort to supplement our faith, to supplement our faith. The idea behind this is to supply lavishly, to make every effort to live as God intends for us to live in righteousness and holiness. Living a godly life is never passive. It requires our active, our intentional, our purposeful engagement. But we need to be reminded that our effort never somehow makes us more saved. We don't supplement in the sense that we add anything to our salvation. Rather, we work out our faith through profoundly changed lives that are evident to all around us. We want people to know by the way that we live, by our behaviors, by our actions, by our attitudes, that we are followers of Christ. This hasn't happened uh, in my life much before, but a couple weeks ago, I was on the racquetball court, and um, a gentleman was there that I hadn't seen for a while. Um, he's of um, Mideastern descent, and um, 
I say that because of what he said to me. And um, he came up to me, hadn't seen me for a while. He says, Mark, it's so good to see you. Um, he says, Mark, I know you're a Christian. He says, I am not a Muslim. I want to be a Christian. I'm reading the Bible every day. Now, that was an amazing thing. I'm just standing there ready to play some racquetball, and this guy comes up to me that I just assumed didn't know the Lord and that, that uh, had no knowledge of the Bible. He says, I'm reading the Bible every day. I want to become a Christian. I says, we need to talk. We need to talk more. And uh, what a joy it is to be able to share your faith first by the way that we live and then by the words that we speak and the power of God's word. So pray for this gentleman. His name is Ali. So the idea that we, we make our glorious salvation in Christ is for us to shine, for all to see. That's what it means to supplement our faith. In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 16, Jesus says, In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. It's important that we understand that in this time, in our response to the current situation, to, to COVID-19, we need to understand that our response to it should be greater than the disease itself. It ought to be that way. As the world sees our good works and so glorifies our Father who is in heaven. So let's look at these seven qualities that we've read about here earlier. The seven qualities that Peter lays out that are qualities of godly living. The first is virtue. Virtue. Supplement your faith with virtue. Virtue, um, other translations translate it moral excellence. It's not just being polite, like opening the door for the person behind you. I like the way our society has changed and people are actually opening doors for other people. But it's not just that kind of thing. Uh, in the Greek uh, culture, virtue refers to heroic deeds, like saving a drowning person. Some of you, I hope many of you, I got a chance to read the story of, uh, of the great and wonderful uh, English preacher pastor, Charles Spurgeon, and his response to the, to the uh, great um, cholera outbreak of the 1850s. While everybody was bailing out of London as fast as they could, uh, he chose to stay behind and to minister to those who were suffering and those who were dying and to expose himself to that disease. That's the kind of moral excellence God calls us to live by. Now, I'm not saying that, that all of us should be heroic and rushing out to expose ourselves to, to a virus that could kill some people, but I am saying that we shouldn't be so fearful that we're not able to share, that we're not able to come alongside others when we need to. That God would give us boldness and wisdom at the same time. In this context, virtue means actually heroically and sacrificially choosing to discipline ourselves to live a God-honoring, holy lives, first of all. That we might have credibility to those around us when we say that we are a follower of Christ. To forsake worldly pleasures and choosing to pursue those things that matter for eternity, putting the interest of others sometimes before our own. Colossians um, chapter 3 First three verses says this. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ 
in God. Being courageous for the Lord means first and foremost, we focus on the Lord. and We set our minds on heavenly things, not on the cares and the worries of this world and the dangers of this world. The second thing we see is knowledge. Knowledge. Knowledge, according to the Bible, is the unchanging truth that is foundational to spiritual development and spiritual effectiveness in our lives. It's the knowledge that can only come from God's word driven by a passionate desire to know him. Verse 3 says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. How? Through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. In Romans chapter 15 and verse 14 it says, I myself, this is the Apostle Paul speaking, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. If we're to encourage and build up one another, we need to be knowledgeable of God's Word. God's Word enlightens our minds and gives clarity to our faith, what we actually believe. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And then... Paul goes on to say, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death that by any means possible I may obtain the resurrection from the dead. Paul's prayer was that I might know him and the power of his resurrection. The knowledge that Peter is calling his readers to have is the knowledge that comes from God's word that strengthens us in his face, in, in, in our faith, and at its very core is the knowledge of knowing Christ and the power of his resurrection. Not just when we're saved, but while we're saved. And then the third thing that we're to look at is that we're to, we're to have in our lives, that we're to seek in our lives, that we're to, to pursue in our lives is self-control. Self-control literally means holding oneself in, controlling ourselves in a way that doesn't just spew out everything that comes to mind or that we might desire. Galatians chapter, chapter 5, in verse 23, we find the list of the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So the capstone of of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. All of these virtues have little impact for our growth and in our lives apart from self-control. Self-control is choosing to use our time and our resources for things that matter matter to the Lord, that matter for eternity, exercising the kind of discipline that forsakes our self-indulgent preferences and embraces activities that strengthen us and others spiritually. That's a really hard thing. I would rather stay home a lot of the time and tinker with a car or, or play sports or read a book, but there are times that God calls me to get out from my things that I prefer and do things that minister to other people. And the more that I do that, the more discipline that it takes. 
There are times when we need to choose to help others in spending our spare time pursuing our own interests. Self-controls require that. Self-control requires that, that we spend time in God's word instead of reading the latest suspense novel. And then uh, God calls us to steadfastness with self-control and self-control with steadfastness. Again, another translation translates this uh, perseverance. Steadfastness is part of self-control. It's self-control over the long haul. It's the long obedience in the same direction. It requires patience and endurance in living a disciplined, godly life, especially in the midst of trials and, and suffering. As one commentator put it, it's remaining strong in unwelcome toil and hardship. For sure, in these days, we may be experiencing greater hardship than we have in a long, long time in this country. Not only sickness, financial stress, relational difficulties, stresses of coming when things just don't seem to go right, that the wheels seem to be coming off of our lives. Steadfastness is being spirit-driven, spirit-empowered, consistency from the core of our being to the outward expressions of our faith and our behaviors. I cut down some trees on our property about a year ago, uh, waiting for them to dry. Hopefully I can have them milled and make some lumber and make a few things. Um, but as I, I called the, uh, the mill, that there's actually a, a lumber mill here in Southern California, I said, uh, I'd like for you to cut my lumber. And he says, well, we, you need to make sure that the core is healthy for you to be able to use the lumber or it won't do you much good. And I'm thinking, isn't that exactly what it's like in our lives? That we need at our very core to be, to be healthy, to be healthy in our faith and to be steadfast in our faith. Jesus uh, explains steadfastness in another way in a, the parable of the soils. And um, he um, describes or, or gives the, the uh, explanation of what the parable is all about um, in Luke chapter 8. And beginning in verse 11, in Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 11, he says, now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts and so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe it for a while and in time of testing, they fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and the riches and the pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. But verse 15 tells us, as for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. Steadfastness is holding fast to the wonderful, powerful, glorious word of God. And again, through this time, there'll be those that, uh, whose, teth, whose faiths will be sorely tested and some might indeed fall away and realize that maybe they never had a face in the first place and need to rethink it altogether. The fifth thing of these seven qualities of, of godly living that God calls us to is godliness. Godliness. Godliness is First, loving God and having reverence for God. Interesting, the, the, the Greek could be translating true religion and worship. 
honoring and loving and adoring our Heavenly Father and living a life worthy of His name. Titus chapter 2 and verse 11 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're to live self-controlled. We've just heard that. Upright, godly lives in this present age. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, in verse 7, it says, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is some value, godliness has a value every day as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. So we're to train ourselves, we're to discipline ourselves for godliness. Consistent, purposeful, disciplined, focus on God and on, on His Word. Focus on His everlasting love, His holiness, and His promises to us. In his first letter, Peter reminds his readers of God's incredibly high standard for godliness that should be the mark of all believers. He quotes Leviticus 11.44. Be holy, for I am holy. God calls us the standard of His holiness in our lives. None of us are going to be perfect in this world, but that's what we should strive for. That's what we should lean to every day. That's what we should ask God with prayer and pleading. Grant to us reverence for His name. Focus upon His name. To see this world and the cares of this world through the lenses of His word. And his call for us to live godly lives. Again, back to 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 10 now, it says, For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. We're to toil and we're to strive. Yes, it is God who works in us to work his, his will and His pleasure in us. It is His Spirit who empowers us and enables us. But God calls us to be disciplined, allowing Him to do His work in us. The sixth thing that we want to see is brotherly affection. Brotherly affection. I kind of like read over this part kind of quickly when I go through this, when I see brotherly affection. Yeah, I got that. Something that we need to think about, I need to think about a lot more. Brotherly affection really is basically brotherly kindness. It's true affection for one another, and it can only arise First, for our affection from God. It, we, we can't really love one another as God loves us until we first love God. We're, we're called to love God as He has loved us because He has first loved us. And just as we should have a desire and need to have a desire to be near to God and to seek His face continually, it is in that context that we can have a real desire to be near fellow believers in particular. To have brotherly affection is to prefer, is to find joy in serving and loving others. Brotherly affection really means we look forward to seeing one another. The brotherly has to do with fellow believers. For me, that, that test is, do I find real joy when I see a fellow believer, when I encounter a fellow believer, when I, when I, when I come to church and I'm engaged in the fellowship of the believers here in this church? Do I measure my my, my brotherly affection by my reaction to being with other people? Do I find real joy and pleasure in greeting one another? 
And then we're, we're called to, to love. This is, the, this is the last on this list of seven. We're called to, to love one another. Um, it says that, we're, that we're, we're to add to our brotherly affection love. Romans 13 tells us to owe no one anything except to love one, each other for, t- for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up, summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. You note here that now this expands our brotherly love, our brotherly kindness, our brotherly affection to actually loving those around us. And how do we demonstrate that love? Well, that others might know the glory of the gospel of Christ. That we demonstrate real, genuine care and affection towards others. Godly love is rooted at the heart of Paul's prayer that we find in Ephesians chapter 3. If you want to turn there, this great and glorious prayer that Paul prays for the Ephesians in chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. He says, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Well, how do we become rooted and grounded in love? Well, we first must be rooted and grounded in the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge. How do we bear fruit in our lives? How do we really demonstrate to all the world that we really are followers of Christ and that we we, we, first, we first must be rooted and grounded in the love of Christ. And it is in His love that we can bear the fruit of love towards, towards others and the willingness to sacrifice our time, our efforts, our very lives for the sake of others. So two um, results happen, one glorious and one tragic, as we either build on these virtues supplement our faith, as it were, on these virtues, or whether we fail to build them in our lives at all. Verse 8 tells us, now we're in back to 2 Peter chapter 1, and verse 8 now tells us, for these qualities are yours and are increasing. They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. If these qualities are yours and are increasing, Peter uh, interjects, I think, a, a subtle test of our faith. If these qualities are yours, that is, if we are truly rooted and grounded in Christ, if we're truly saved, we should know, we should grow in our godliness, and we'll be effective, and we'll bear spiritual fruit. True knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, confidence that we are in Him, that we know Him, that He keeps us, that He will never leave us or forsake us, if these qualities are yours and are increasing. But the second part here in verse 9 tells us, whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. 
Now, here, Peter is being pretty forthright, isn't he? he? He's basically saying, if we don't demonstrate these qualities in our lives, this, this virtue and, and, and knowledge and self-control and steadfastness and godliness and brotherly affection and love, if these qualities are not in our lives, we are basically blind to our faith. We've forgotten that we are saved. And for some of us, we, we should ask the question, if these aren't qualities in our lives, are, are we truly followers of Christ in the first place? Have we just given it lip service or do we truly believe? So he says as a result of that, in verse 10, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Two things are real about this. One is, is that when we're obedient to demonstrate these qualities in our lives, that we confirm in our own hearts that God has called us, that we are followers of Christ, that our faith is real. We evidence first to ourselves that we know the Lord, that we don't, that we don't find ourselves doubting our faith. We don't found, find ourselves walking in weakness and uncertainty. Obedience to the Lord confirms in our faith our, our hearts, our faith in the Lord. And then it says you'll never fall. What this means is that a pattern of our lives that we're going to be consistent and we're going to be strong in our faith, not stumbling around. I think what we see is that as we grow in Christ that we find that sin is less part of our lives and godliness and holiness in our lives is more. That's the way it should be. That's what it means to be mature in Christ. That's what it means to grow in Christ. That's what it means to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. As we grow in these qualities by His strength, He transforms us from glory to the glory to the very image of Christ, to be more like Him and less like the, our old self. And He says we'll never fail, we'll never fall. Verse 11, for in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We'll be confident in our faith, be confident in our salvation, and confident that we will someday stand before Him and that He will tell us good and faithful. That we are good and faithful servants. So then, how should we live in light of a broken and sometimes scary world? Well, at the very core is we, we need to revisit often our confidence and our faith in our Lord Jesus. We need to acknowledge Him daily as our Lord, not for salvation, that happens once for all at one time, but He's our Lord every day and we should acknowledge that and confess that and ask Him to increase our faith. Lord, we believe you help our unbelief. Lord, I have faith in you. Help my unfaithfulness. In Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6, it says, without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And for those who have never confessed faith in the Lord Jesus, the Bible is real clear. In Romans chapter 10, it tells us, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with, with the heart, one believes and is justified. With the mouth, one confesses and is saved. 
you don't know the Lord Jesus today, I encourage you. I actually implore you. Take the time to look into God's word, to understand God's call in your life, to acknowledge the Lord Jesus, confess the Lord Jesus as Savior and Lord, the only means of salvation. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. But when we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and we believe that God has raised him from the dead, the Bible tells us we will be saved for all of eternity. And we need not fear the, the, the prevails of today. We not, need not fear the viruses that are all around us. We need not fear God's certain and coming judgment of this world. And for those who know the name of Christ, we are called to live lives worthy of our Lord in virtue and in knowledge and self-control and steadfastness and godliness in brotherly affection and love. So let me encourage you as we close. Keep praying for the many people that uh, we've shared here in this church the last several weeks who don't know the Lord Jesus. Pray that they would come to saving faith. Pray for them by name. Be courageous to purposely engage those that you know and share your faith. Now's the time. And above all, keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. We used to sing a little chorus when I was in high school. Turn your eyes on Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Lord, thank you for our time together this morning. Thank you that you love us with an everlasting love, that you have secured us for now and for all of eternity, Lord, in the rock of our faith, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you that you have granted to us all things that pertain to, to, to faith and godliness. And we pray, Lord, that you would confirm in us today a desire uh, steadfastness, to do that which you've called us to do, that we would supplement evidence our faith by these virtues that we've looked at today. Lord, help us to be a people who are consistent before you, to follow you faithfully, to proclaim your name boldly. And we thank you for these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about grace, please visit our website at graceorange.org.